Al Jazeera podcast. Today on The Take, a special episode capping off our first week of coverage on the escalation of violence in Israel and Palestine. As the war on Gaza rages, we're looking at how the media covers it in conversation with three people in the U.S., U.K., and Canada, all with experiences in those countries. You can also catch this discussion via video on YouTube. The link is in the show description. This podcast has been lightly edited for audio. Here's the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Thank you all for being here with me for this special roundtable episode of The Take. As we record this interview, the death toll stands at at least 1,445 Palestinians in Gaza and the occupied West Bank, and more than 1,300 people in Israel, killed since October 7th. So today... We want to discuss the narratives around Israel and Palestine. And my guests today can all speak about challenges that they face to put forward views and information that go beyond the mainstream narratives around the conflict in their countries. And these are my guests. I'm going to go around our virtual room and have them introduce themselves. I'm Omar Badar, and I'm a Palestinian-American political analyst based in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Ash Sarka. I'm a contributing editor at Navarro Media based in London. My name is Pasant Matar. I'm Egyptian-Canadian journalist who spent 10 years at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto. So let's just dive right in. We're going to do a lightning round of sorts. I am going to mimic something that happens when analysts and journalists like yourselves hit the cable news circuit, and the host has you simplify a really complicated topic in about 15 seconds. So I'm going to ask you to sum up your experience talking or writing about the topic of Palestine and Israel's occupation in one word. Omar. Infuriating. Mm. Ash. Frustrating. And percent? Silencing. Oh, really good words. So much to unpack right there. So, Omar, let's start with you. Um, You were recently interviewed on CNN's This Morning about the events of this week. And the rare phenomenon of seeing a Palestinian speaker on national TV in the U.S. really made waves online. People congratulating you as the video circulated. But that interview and that seat at the proverbial table has been a long time coming, especially given what you just said about how you would sum up your experience. Do you remember some of the earlier pushback or flat-out inaccurate or insensitive questions that you've gotten in the past? Look, I think the single most infuriating thing of of trying to do this issue on on U.S. media is trying to get people who are used to seeing Palestinians, not seeing Palestinians, frankly, where Palestinians are invisible, where their pain is is absent, where their lives don't matter, um, and who perk up only when there is death and suffering on the Israeli side, and suddenly you see these thorough humanizing stories. You know, we've seen it on a loop now for for several days. The parents of Israeli victims being interviewed at length, talking about what their kids were like, about the pain of of losing them and so on. And you have a far more protracted um, context in which Palestinians are constantly 
facing death and war crimes and besiegement and occupation and brutalization. And yet you don't see Palestinian faces or families or stories ever told on US media. And trying to break into that space to remind people of the fact that context matters, of the fact that um, any serious person who's interested in looking at a solution for this um, would have to deal with the underlying injustice of it seems to take U.S. anchors by surprise, as if you're bringing up stuff that isn't really the the issue at hand. The issue at hand is whatever violence Palestinians meted out to Israelis at, at, at any particular instance. And anything beyond that to them looks like a distraction or a deflection, when in fact it is very much the core of the issue that they're doing their audiences a disservice by not addressing and not covering. Frankly, it's sensationalized to the point to where all they want to talk about is kind of violence and heartbreak without ever telling people without ever telling people why any of this stuff is happening. I'll just give you one one particular example on the context of occupation. Often they talk about the violence as if you have two equal sides um, crossing a border somewhere, when in reality, Israel is living on top of Palestinians by imposing this brutal and illegal military occupation and siege. And when you take that context away, the violence doesn't make sense outside of that context. It just looks like random mindless people fighting. And you see it trivialized and talking about, oh, people fighting over land, how trivial and how stupid. Well, I'm sorry, when you put people under occupation and brutalize them and try to take their homes away, that is absolutely something that is worth fighting for. And people who are living under that occupation have the right to resist it. And that I think is is incredibly invisible. Mm. Ash, I want to widen this out to talk about some of the coverage in the UK over the past few days. Your news organization, Navara Media, has been accused of behaving like, quote, and I'm, I'm pulling up the tweet here, anti-Semitic vermin for trying to correct a twisted quote by Sky News that was being attributed to Hossam Zumlat, who was the head of the Palestinian mission to the UK. Now, the Sky News anchor asked guests on her show, quote, what do you say to the Palestinian ambassador basically saying the Israelis had it coming? What about your opposite number, David Lamy, sharing a platform uh, with the uh, Palestinian um, ambassador who um, basically said the Israelis had it coming? Well, th- th- those comments, the idea that somehow the... the Would you bo- share a platform with him? No, I wouldn't. But that's not what Zomlot said. Ash, what did that experience say to you about how this conflict is framed in the UK? Well, this is why I use the word frustrating, because in some ways I'm very idealistic as a journalist. I believe in the journalistic values of accuracy of skepticism and of fair reporting. And when I see the British media establishment failing to uphold those standards, I feel deeply and intensely frustrated and quite disappointed. You know, these are journalists who I grew up listening to on the radio or watching on television. But I've realized that where journalists consistently fail to be accurate, fail to be fair, It's not an accident. It's because they're reflecting where power really lies. So when you have a very senior journalist like Kay Burley, and it wasn't just once that she misattributed a quote to Hassam Zomlot. It was multiple times. She was putting questions to Labour Party frontbenchers, accusing the Palestinian ambassador of saying that Israel had it coming. This was an entirely fabricated quote. 
she refused to engage with me and my colleagues when we said this quote is made up. She, in fact, behaved very aggressively and with a lot of hostility, dripping with disdain. And the response on social media was to accuse us of anti-Semitism. The reason why this is happening is because there's a very particular UK context. And that's what happened with Jeremy Corbyn's socialist leadership of the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019. He was repeatedly accused of anti-Semitism, often on very flimsy pretexts. And what that's become is this narrative that A, the left is inherently anti-Semitic and B, any sort of attempt to correct the record on coverage of Israel, any attempt to humanize Palestinians or understand the conflict from the Palestinian perspective, that is also anti-Semitic. So when you have an organization like Navarra Media, we're left-wing, we are a hell of a lot more sympathetic towards the plight of the Palestinian people than the rest of the mainstream media. And we make it our business to confront and call out mainstream media malpractice. You'll get these accusations flying our way. And the primary victim of that, it's not us. The people who it most does a disservice to are the audiences who are being fed a diet of low quality, unreliable information, Mm. and the Israeli and Palestinian populations who are being reported on. Everyone has the right to be represented fairly. Mm. Um, Raise your hand and your voice for our uh, listeners if you've been accused of anti-Semitism for something you have said in support of or explaining the context. So Omar, raise your hand. Absolutely. Ash, we, we know that, 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 that your organization has at least. Um, absolutely. Omar, tell me about it. Uh, twice on air, actually. Um, one instance for pointing out that Israel had blocked certain foods from going into Gaza at the beginning of the siege. It's an absolute fact that is documented by the UN. And that was grounds for the first accusation. And the second was me pointing out that the U.S. gives Israel billions in military funding and that they should be held accountable for how that funding um, is used. And I was accused of anti-Semitism for bringing up money and Israel in the same sentence. It's it's utterly absurd. Hmm. I should say, Malika, anti-Semitism is a very serious and rising problem. Um, we saw a significant expansion of it during the Trump era where the threat of white supremacy with synagogues being shot up it's incredibly serious, and to see it being trivialized and exploited in this fashion is incredibly distasteful. It's not only dangerous for the uh, supporters of Palestinian human rights who are being smeared by it, but frankly, it's also dangerous for the American Jewish community to start watering down that charge by using it to throw it at human rights advocates. It's it's incredibly destructive on every front, and people who use it so cynically really are doing untold damage. Hmm. Um, Present, I see you nodding your head there. Um, I know that you have had your own struggles um, with being heard and um, having your voice um, listened to in the media. You've written about this, at least in Canada, in the past, in a now award-winning essay for The Walrus, in which you detail something that happened in 2017. The first and only time you write, in your then 10 years in journalism, that a story of yours was pulled. And notably, that story featured 
a friend and a former colleague of mine, award-winning Palestinian-American journalist Ahmed Shahabuddin. So tell us that story. And keep in mind that that was 2017. How much has changed? Yes, thank you. That that day in 2017, um, it was perhaps the starkest example of what happens when you put Palestinian voices on the air and voices that are critical of the Israeli military, of the occupation. What was so telling in this case, uh, we were speaking to Ahmed Shehabuddin because he was in Jerusalem covering protests. And part of the angle that we were talking to him about was not just what's happening in the protest, but what is it like as a journalist to cover this? And he had posted video on his Twitter that everyone could see of him being stopped, questioned, jostled around by Israeli military. And um, when I pitched this story, this was a story that they wanted to be their lead story. What are the challenges of covering Israel and Palestine? And the, it was the most bizarre experience. But to make a very long story short, after it being slated as our lead story under immense pressure to get it, once we recorded that conversation on a Friday, I edited down a conversation uh, for that was about 21 minutes to a, a neat seven minutes. <laughs> Which is a feat in itself. I went for a celebratory coffee. I was feeling really good about, you know, having gotten the story. These questions were approved, vetted. We talked about it. We all know there's an editorial process by which these things are approved and put onto our lineup. This is, everyone was on board with this. But for some reason, right after the interview, I came back from my walk and was told, not asked, not uh, approached to discuss, this interview is not going to run. Mm. We don't have time to explain it to you. We now have a hole in the show. Wow. Take it up with management if you're interested. And uh, it was the first time as well. Listen, we're all journalists. I know what it's like to have editorial disagreements, to perhaps need to take out one clip or verify something. I was actually waiting for a response from the Israeli Defense Forces to include in the story, to respond to Ahmed's accounts. So the journalism was sound. Um, and at no point was I told there are issues with this interview until it was unceremoniously yanked from the air. And I spent a week in meetings trying to understand what was the missing piece? What went wrong here? Can we talk about this? Ahmed Shehabuddin is writing to me saying, what happened to the interview? I don't even know. And to be excluded, so excluded from your own editorial process. Um, it was the first and only time in 10 years um, that this happened. And at the end, uh, I, a senior manager wrote to him and said that there were, quote, unexpected difficulties that came up in telling this story. And I'll tell you very honestly, that day I, I literally thought on the spot about quitting. I said, this is such an egregious example of a journalist trying to talk about covering this issue only to be pulled from the air. Um, and we talk a big game about free expression. So it was very formative and I almost quit on the spot, but instead chose to write about it three years later in this essay. And it was fact-checked, bulletproof, because as you know, there's a real fear in talking about this. And I felt like I had done something wrong. I'm of course an Egyptian Muslim journalist and you know, the, the, um, the specter of bias hangs very heavily on people like us, but it was sound journalism and it was journalism. And, 
you know, I think it's worth mentioning that journalists are being targeted right now. I just saw the Reuters Institute talk about five journalists that have been killed. We, of course, of course know about Shirin Abu Akli, who was killed 18 months ago by an Israeli sniper. Israel has apologized for her death. No one has been prosecuted. So I can't disentangle what's happening to Palestinian people from the inability of journalists to even tell this story and be heard and the struggles of journalists behind the scenes trying to tell these stories, it is inextricably linked to me. I mean, if I could just jump in, it sounds to me that what you've experienced and Omar, what you've experienced as well, it's something which you see a lot in the UK, which is that if you're trying to tell the story from a perspective which recognizes Palestinian humanity, which, you know, recognizes that Israel has failed its obligations under international law, you are held to such a high standard. It's like everyone's waiting for you to trip up. Mm. And even when you jump through all the hoops and you dot every I and you cross every T, you can still find yourself being silenced without any form of due process whatsoever. Even when you've met those standards, Whereas when it comes to telling the Israeli narrative, it's like those standards no longer exist. So you end up with UK newspapers pushing out unverified, uncorroborated at this moment in time information alleging that babies were beheaded at a massacre at Kibbutz. Now, regardless of the manner of those babies' deaths, it's horrifying. All of us on a human level know it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why the newspapers were pushing this particular detail. It's because it makes it even more barbaric, even more grotesque, and it lends more credence and justification to the project of total war on Gaza. But the story was based on one reporter saying that this is what they'd been told by an IDF soldier. That's not a reliable story. Any journalist will tell you you need at least two sources to run anything, let alone a front page story. So when it comes to talking about what's going on in Gaza, all of us are so perpetually aware that we have to cite the most internationally recognized and respected sources. We have to talk about Reuters. We have to talk about Press Association. We have to talk about AFP. Whereas when it comes to the Israeli narrative, it can be very, very unreliable information, but it will get wall-to-wall -wall coverage on mainstream media as if it is the gospel truth. The absolute most horrific details that have been shared that turned out to be utter lies have been repeated hundreds of times on mainstream outlets throughout the US and I'm sure in many, many other places as well. And that's precisely the kind of lying that provides cover for the genocidal rhetoric that we are currently seeing from Israeli leaders and makes it seem not so bad by comparison, right? If you believe some of those details, suddenly hearing people talk in the genocidal way that Israeli leaders are talking, um, that seems almost excusable. And it's just clearly part of a broader propaganda campaign to justify what is currently unfolding and what is likely going to expand to proportions that we've never seen before. We are watching an unprecedented horror unfolding in Gaza right now. And, and frankly, hearing just that story of how that... Um, particular report with Ahmed Shahabuddin was yanked without even an explanation. The part without the explanation is the most predictable part hmm. because there is no explaining to do. The only explanation is it doesn't feel right that you're portrayed Palestinians as victims. There isn't a coherent way. Nobody can verbalize why that's a problem because obviously it's not. 
it just does not fit into the broader conditioning that we've been under for so, so long to, to convey and, and portray Palestinians exclusively um, as sc either scary monsters or, or whatever, like poor refugees who need um, humanitarian assistance, but never as people who are in need of freedom and who are having that freedom denied by an oppressive Israeli occupation and an existence that is that is controlling every aspect of their lives. So in a way, yeah, it's honestly a testament to your journalistic integrity, the fact that they were not able to give you an explanation and you can then know that this is just a plain assault on something um, that is fundamentally truthful and of integrity at its core. Mm. Beautifully said, Omar. I want to link something you said with with a question. I want to um, then pivot to you with Vicente, and this is this idea of um, this this misinformation that is abounding and is really allowed to abound in the pages of newspapers, in the mouths of presidents. We heard uh, U.S. President Joe Biden also repeat um, uh, that statement about beheadings of children. The White House later walked that back, said that it came from the Israeli government and Israeli media reports, but has not been able to corroborate that or verify it themselves. So on the one hand, you have these narratives um, that are not fact-checked, that are not accurate, abounding. And on the other hand, you have a discourse around Israel and Palestine often being silenced when it comes from the mouths of Palestinians or people who are trying to show the humanity of Palestinians. So one example I'm thinking of in particular, Pacent, a presenter for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, where you used to work, seemed to frame pro-Palestine protests in Canada as protests that support Hamas and support Hamas's attack on Israel, saying, Protests in some ways celebrated the Hamas attacks. He then went on to ask Canada's foreign minister if Canadians who went to those protests should be prosecuted for supporting terrorism, based on some calls for that to happen. Minister, what do you say to Canadians or other people in this country who might go to a protest uh, that, that critics say is purporting to celebrate what Hamas has done. I mean, should these protests be happening? There have been some calls by others to, to maybe find a way to prosecute this over supporting terrorism. I, I don't know if, if it goes that far or not, in your view. Uh, but what is your message to Canadians that might attend these protests, given what's happened in the last 48 hours or so? What did you think when you saw that? What do you think when you hear that, percent? I think it's so scary. And I think it is so, again, linked to, you know, we use this word, we hear this word dehumanization all the time in media. And it's a big word, but I can't help but think about the reason that there is such a flattening of all Palestinians right now, or anyone who believes in freedom for Palestinian people or the end of an occupation, everyone has been lumped into they are then, of course, supporters of Hamas, which is such a flattening. It is such a misrepresentation. It is inaccurate. And I can link it to the fact that Palestinians in the media are rarely allowed to exist as just themselves. They are often brought on in opposition to only after something that has happened in Israel. They are always framed as a response to. They are never allowed to come on and speak about their own experiences I used to keep a list, Malika, of pitches that I made on Palestine and Palestinian people that were with, outside of 
big assaults and wars like we're seeing now, just everyday things like the destruction of olive trees, the prevention of people in Gaza from fishing because they are under blockade, and just trying to get at the daily injustices that create this very deadly combination. And there was always just, and you know how it is, every day we're deciding what's newsworthy, what's not, what's relevant to Canadians, what's not, and it just never made the cut. So then you have an explosion like the one we're seeing now, and so there is no context to why this violence, why is this happening? And I want to be clear, I think a lot of people are saying when we provide context, when we try to bring in history and what happens, that we are justifying or supporting violence against Israeli civilians. That is not the case, but it is a misrepresentation and a disservice when people I'm sure all of you are getting this. People are writing to me saying, I can't quite understand what's happening. How is it that people still don't understand what's happening? And I think Western media in particular has done a disservice to its audiences by not providing context and historical daily coverage of Palestinians and daily life there to understand the level of frustration and the tinderbox, quite frankly, of why we're seeing violence like this erupt all it turns into is you're justifying it. And says, no, context matters, nuance matters. But these words um, really fail to come to the surface when we talk about Israel and Palestine, and specifically through the lens of Palestinian people. Hmm. Um, well, then I have to end with our Palestinian voice on this panel. Omar, one of the things that's striking about working in a diverse newsroom, like the one I happen to work in, is recognizing that there is a strength to coverage when your colleagues are people who have real connections to the stories that you're covering, but also recognizing that that can take a toll on you, on them. It's a feeling that I remember feeling really viscerally during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests, um, the anti-police brutality protests in 2020. For you, how are you coping with the need to mourn what are likely personal tragedies as a Palestinian, as a human, while also having to educate the public on why the world needs to care? That's a really, really good question, Malika. And honestly, I wish I were doing this well. I wish I could say I'm feeling like I'm taking care of myself well enough so I can offer advice on how to do this. But the reality is, for me, I haven't slept in uh, since this entire crisis had begun unfolding. And I feel like I'm in the trenches. This is this is no time to feel much because there is a, a drumbeat and, and an escalation towards crimes on a scale that we have never witnessed before. And I feel this intense responsibility to insert my voice in every way possible, get accurate information out in every way possible. And this is to me just, it's um, yeah, emergency mode. So I'm certainly feeling the toll of that. I certainly do feel like to be in this environment where being around people who are feeling what you're feeling is, is absolutely critical to feel some sense of solidarity because it is extremely alienating um, to be doing this work where you're constantly just butting your head against the wall over and over again, trying to get people to see Palestinians as human beings who are deser deserving of the same coverage, of the same decency, of the same dignity, and the basic human rights that Israelis get to enjoy, um, and, and seeing that as, as a really, really steep uphill climb is, is a deeply frustrating experience. And, you know, if anything, I, I hope that 
I can learn from other people about how to do this a little bit better so that it doesn't take as much of a personal toll, but it is incredibly challenging. And certainly if you have Palestinian friends who are fighting that fight, I think check up on them and make sure words of support have meant so much to me. I've heard from very, very random people um, who I did not expect, expect to hear from in this time. And truly every one of those messages has meant the world to me. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's not, a, it's not an easy process, but we, we owe it to the people who are far less privileged than we are, who are experiencing the worst of this on the ground, um, for us to keep fighting this fight uh, tooth and nail to get the correct story out and to get people to understand um, that Palestinians are ultimately victims and that the only people who can stop this violence from continuing to spin over and over again is the Israeli government because its policies of occupation and apartheid are ultimately the fundamental driving force of all the violence. Hmm. Well, that said, I am so grateful to be in conversation. It's a healing conversation just to have um, these discussions out loud with other journalists, with people who know what this feels like is healing in itself. And I hope it's healing for our listeners as well. Omar Ashbasen, thank you so much for taking the time to navigate this issue with me. I really appreciate it. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra, Veronisa Campana, and Sonia Bagat, with Khaled Sultan, Chloe Kaylee, Amy Walters, Siri El Khalili, Miranda Lynn, David Enders, Zaina Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back this weekend with something new. <laughs>